me why I believe like I do, why I'm so convinced that the Bible is true. I'm here to tell you it's only because I've seen through enough to see what faith does. Faith sees the invisible, believes the impossible, receives the incredible, no matter what was. Faith moves the unmovable, proves the unprovable for anyone willing to trust. Believe and you'll see what faith does. If there's a mountain that stands in your way, from all you can see, it will be there to stay. God said with the faith of a small mustard seed, that mountain will move. Believe and you'll see. Faith sees the invisible, believes the impossible, receives the incredible, no matter what was. Faith moves the unmovable, proves the unprovable for anyone willing to trust. Believe and you'll see what faith does. Faith sees the invisible, believes the impossible, receives the incredible, no matter what was. Faith moves the unmovable, proves the unprovable for anyone willing to trust. Believe and you'll see what faith does. Believe and you'll see what faith does. All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah this morning, the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah and uh, chapter 13 is where we are going to be this morning. Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, as most of you, if not all of you know, that next Sunday we start our revival. Brother Paul Schwenke is going to be with us, and that's going to start on Sunday morning. And... Um, this morning's message kind of in preparation to that and also want to make note just so that you um, know what's going on next Sunday. We're going to change the schedule just a little bit. We're tweaking things because uh, next weekend also is the air show. Uh, they moved it back to Hillsboro and they're having it very early uh, this year. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to have one service in the morning. We're going to have our 10 o'clock service and then uh, be out of here by the time the jets start going. And then, of course, we'll have our evening service because by that time everything is done and it will be quiet. And so we're, we're, so we're changing the schedule a little bit next week, just the 10 o'clock service next week, and then uh, the 6 o'clock evening service. No 11 o'clock service because that's about the time that, as I said, the jets start going and it's just so can be so distracting that it really... Um, defeats the entire purpose of trying to have a message preached. And so that's why we're going to do that. But then again, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, we'll be back here at 7 o'clock for that revival. That starts next Sunday. This morning I want to preach a message entitled Opening the Door to Revival. And so we're in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 
chapter 13, and we're going to go ahead and begin reading in verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 13, and I know it's not not a portion of Scripture that we're uh, that we go to a lot, so I'll give you a little bit of time. Let's go ahead and stand once we find it. Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning on verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse number 1. The Bible says, On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. Tobiah was also an Ammonite. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you'd give us understanding in your word, Lord. I pray, Father, that this morning we'd be able to apply this to our current circumstances, Lord, that we would. Clear everything out of our lives, Lord, that would hinder us from experiencing revival in our lives. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can go ahead and be seated. Nehemiah was a very patriotic man who proved to be a very capable leader. He was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes I under the Persian, uh, Medo-Persian Empire. But when he heard news from his brother that the conditions in Jerusalem were still atrocious, uh, many of the Jews had been allowed to return to Jerusalem. The temple had been completed some 71 years prior to this. And yet things were not going well in Jerusalem. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 3, the Bible says, this is Nehemiah speaking, he says, They said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So Nehemiah literally living in the lap of luxury. He was out in Shushan, he was out in uh, in the palace, uh, in the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, a lifetime away from what was going on in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah was an Israelite. And there he had the, the task of bringing the cup or bringing the food, if you will, to the king. And so this would be, this would be a very honorable position. It was a very trustworthy position. Nehemiah was the go-between between the king and anyone who might want to poison him or anyone who might want to kill him. And so he had that that great position. And with that great position, you can imagine, comes also great prestige. But even though he was living in the lap of luxury, he still cared about his brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. Why, some 70-some years ago, they were able to go back and they built the temple, but for the past seven decades, they had been suffering. Well, he uh, had talked to someone in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 3, and he had asked, how are things going? They had just returned from Jerusalem. How are things going over there? 
and the report was not good. Things are not going well at all. They are uh, afflicted. They are uh, reproached. As a matter of fact, the exact words were this, that they are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. They are really going through it. Hearing the bad news and the condition of God's people, Nehemiah was not just asking, hey, how are things going? And oftentimes we'll say, hey, how are things going? And then we just leave it at that. We, we move on with our day. Nehemiah really wanted to know, how are things going? And when he heard that things were not going very well at all, the Bible says that it brought him to his knees. Let's keep your finger here in Nehemiah 13, but let's get a little bit of background here. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1 and, and verse, number, verse number 1. Let's just start in verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace. He was working there. He was living there. Literally, the lap of luxury. Verse number 2. He says that Hannah and I, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And I want you to notice, Nehemiah doesn't just say, Well, you know, that's too bad. We ought to pray for them and then just move on. That's often what we do as Christians. We just, well, well, that's too bad. It's, it's too bad things are going so terribly in our society. It's too bad things are going so awful in our city. You know, we ought to be praying for it. No, we ought to be doing more than that. We ought to be grieving for our city. When we have the opportunity to have an outreach for our city, we ought to be outreaching in our city. We ought to be witnessing to our city. We ought to be uh, presenting our city with the gospel because it's the only hope that they're going to have. And so Nehemiah didn't just say, well, you know, that's just too bad. We ought to just pray for them. The Bible says he did more than that. Verse number four, it came to pass when I heard these words, he says, I sat down and I wept. I mourned certain days, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now." Day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We've dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. You know, this is an outstanding prayer. First of all, we see that Nehemiah, first of all, he takes it very personally, what's going on with his brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. Second, we see that he doesn't lay all the blame on a certain group of people. He says, it's us. It's we. Can I say what's wrong with the United States of America? It's not the politicians. It's not those that are passing immoral laws. It's us. 
It's we. The Bible says that judgment starts begin in the house of, uh, or judgment begins first in the house of God. And, you know, we have become lax and we have become lackadaisical. We have become apathetic. We don't pray like this anymore. We don't weep like this anymore. We don't fast like this anymore. And one of the reasons, I think, is because we're afraid what happened to Nehemiah might happen to us. God called Nehemiah out of the lap of luxury and sent him to Jerusalem where he actually had to do the job. But he became a very, very capable leader. Once he arrived in Jerusalem and surveyed the situation, Nehemiah was able to orchestrate the rebuilding of the city walls. And in 52 days, those walls that had been burnt down were, were built up. An amazing thing, an amazing feat, allowing the people now to build their homes and other necessary buildings and structures and safety. Revival was taking place among these people. But how did it happen? It takes place when people legitimately seek the truth. They push all preconceived notions and opinions aside and say, my opinion doesn't count, only God's, God count, God's counts. And, and, and what I think doesn't really matter, only what God thinks is what matters. They open themselves up completely to the word of God and the will of God regardless of what the consequences may be. And the consequences may very well be God takes us out of the lap of luxury and puts us right in the middle of the fight. But we ought to be willing to do that if we truly want to see change and revival. This openness to revival can be seen by the statement made by those present at the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the word to those men. And the Bible says that they looked up at Peter and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, first, repent, and secondly, be baptized. In our portion of scripture, we see several keys that were opening up the doors to revival among God's people in Israel. Getting back to Nehemiah chapter 13. Even though this is Old Testament, Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 15, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. And so we can certainly use these principles and apply them to the church today and toward opening the doors for revival. Boy, what does it take? What will it require? I want to look at some keys, looking back at Nehemiah chapter 13 now. Nehemiah chapter 13, the first thing we see in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse number 1, was was their worship. Their worship, true worship. First of all, there was a center of worship. The Bible says on, on that day they read in the book of Moses. This morning, and if you were in Sunday school, the lesson was on the Word of God and how that we don't center our worship. We don't center our worship around entertainment. We don't center our worship around man's opinions. We don't center our worship around books and and what's going on. What's the latest in the religious movements today? Our worship has always been and always will be centered on the Word of God. And that's where it's supposed to be centered. That's what the word. That's that's uh, what the church is supposed to be all about. The New Testament calls the church the repository of God's truths, uh, the 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 ground and pillar of the truth. What is the truth? Thy word is truth. 
And so that's what the Word of God is, to, or that's what the church ought to be centered on. That's what worship ought to be centered on. God's Word was the purpose of this, of this assembly. And by the way, that's what they had of God's Word in Nehemiah's day, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and uh, the, the Pentateuch, as they would call it. On that day, they read in the book of Moses, the Bible as they had it. God's word is the key to revival. It is supernatural, as we learned this morning, in many areas. Supernatural in its power, in its profit, and what it can do. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and in verse number 21. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. The word of God says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. By the way, that's the gospel, that's the word of God. And so Paul says all these other groups, they require certain things. The Jews want a sign, they want miracles. The Greeks, they want wisdom, they want academia. But Paul says the church, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the gospel. And that is what is so sorely needed in a world today that is seeking answers. Josh mentioned this morning how that you almost every day you pick up the newspaper. Well, I don't know if people pick up the newspaper anymore. You probably get on the internet and read on your news app. Man, someone else, some young star. I mean, you could just go the last several weeks. The goalie of uh, the um, NCAA champion soccer team uh, just committed suicide here about a month ago. Um, And it just goes on. Prior to that, there was another star athlete that had committed suicide. One of the kids, if you ever watch reality TV, if you ever watch Toddlers and Tierras, I think is what the name of the show was. One of the toddlers that was on one of those beauty pageant uh, uh, shows, which she's now 16, lives up in Blaine, Washington. She recently committed suicide. Listen, it, it just goes on and on and on. Why? We have everything, but we don't have anything because we don't have Jesus. We don't have the word. And it is so, so necessary. And Nehemiah knew what they needed back in Jerusalem. You know, upon entering Nineveh, Jonah cried the word of God. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah chapter 4, verse number 5 says, So the people believed God. See, Nineveh just, or Jonah just repeated the word of God. It was a very simple message. It was a very short message. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it didn't seem very intelligent. It wasn't full of signs. It was just the facts. Yea, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. The Bible tells us that God used that to stir up an entire city And they began to uh, fast, and they began to weep, and they sat in sackcloth and ashes. They repented, and an entire city was saved. Not because of some great philosophical speech, but because one man came into the city and began to cry out and repeat what God had told him, the word of God. 
So the people, the Bible says, believed God. It's sad to say, but God's word is no longer the center of many assemblies today. There's so many other things going on that the Bible or God's word or a true Bible message just seems like it would be a distraction. And we've got so many other things going on and, 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 and there's only so much time in our worship services. He, if we got to cut everything else out, we ought to have the word of God and nothing else. The church is, according to God's word, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 15, the pillar and ground of the truth, or the word of God. It's therefore the duty of the church to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. That's the duty, that's the obligation of the church. The purpose was not social. Social was one of the benefits. And by the way, you receive social benefits from being part of a local New Testament church. Uh, God promises you gain family in the church. You gain lifelong friends in the church. But, uh, of course, there's no such thing as perfection. There's no such thing as the perfect church. We're also going to have fights. We're going to have arguments. We're going to have disagreements. Uh, Not everyone's going to drive the same kind of car. And and that may even cause some disagreements and situations uh, uh, like that. We're a family. But the purpose of the church was not social. Nor was it to make people feel comfortable. Sometimes we come into church and... Well, sometimes it's the last place we want to be, but we go because that's what the child of God is supposed to do. Uh, And sometimes the word of God preached makes us feel uncomfortable, nor was it to entertain, although we do get some pretty good entertainment when we are with the family of God. Hey, notice not only the center of worship, but Also, the assembly to worship. The assembly to worship. The Bible says on that day, they read in the book of Moses, in the audience of the people. Now, I'm just going out on a limb, but I don't think that they live streamed the message that day. Now, I'm going out on a limb. I mean, I can't prove it. But I don't think they live-streamed the message that day. I think that everyone was assembled together. And incidentally, if you miss the message, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get it later on YouTube anyway, as we found out last Sunday when they took one of our messages down. And so... When you, uh, when you don't show up to the assembly, first of all, you miss out anyway. And second of all, there's no guarantee you're going to get the message to begin with. Hey, the assembly, the word of God was read in the audience. Sure, the Bible can and should be read by individuals in the privacy of their own homes. Couldn't in the day of Nehemiah, there, there was no printing press in those days. It was in the assembly. As a matter of fact, when Jesus instituted the local New Testament church, there was no printing press. When you wanted to hear the word of God, you went to church to hear the word of God. 
and to hear it preached and to hear it taught. There's a reason for the local New Testament church. Yeah, the Bible can and should be read by individuals now that we can. My goodness, thank the Lord. We can even download the, download the Bible on our, on our phones now. There's no reason for us not to know what the Word of God says. But very few, if any, home Bible studies have ever ignited a revival. The doctrine that teaches that the church is not necessary for a Christian is not a doctrine of God's Word. Timothy, or Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse number 1, and said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This, this movement that we don't need the local church, that is a doctrine of the devil. That is not a biblical doctrine. He remember that uh, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. Preachers who teach this are like Balaam. Second Peter chapter 2, verse number 15. They've forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And so when it comes to this assembly, notice this wasn't the only assembly. Turn uh, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. In the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8. This was key to the revival being experienced under Nehemiah. This was something that they practiced. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and in verse number 1. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse number 1. The Bible says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. This would, again, be the books of Moses. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and women and those that could understand. And the ears of the people were, first of all, attentive. And so there's some key things that we find here in this assembly that helps to open up the, uh, the doors to revival. First of all, they wanted the book to be read. They gathered together. There were no excuses except some. And I want you to notice what they are here. The Bible says that those who came together were men and women and all that could hear with understanding. That would go all the way down to kids. All that could hear, all that could understand. In other words, one of the things they did was they taught their kids how to sit in church and listen to the Word of God. Now, there were obviously some exceptions. Uh, them that could under that, them that could hear, and then that, them that could understand. Um, there were some that had to stay with the, the babies and some that had to stay with the toddlers. Not everyone could be there. And boy, I praise God for our, 
our, our, our nursery workers and our toddler workers and those that make, uh, the, uh, make it so that those of us who can hear, those that can understand, are able to without distraction. But the Bible says that they all gathered. And then the Bible tells us that they were all attentive. He read there in both before the street, verse number three, that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. That's a long service. Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of the people were attentive. Boy, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And they were hungry and they were thirsty and they wanted to hear what the word of God had to say. I love being part of a church that loves the preaching of God's word. It makes all the difference in the world. They were attentive, the Bible says. They wanted to hear. They wanted to lap it up. They, uh, they wanted to grow. They wanted this revival. They were very attentive. But not only were they attentive, the Bible tells us in verse number four, there was something else about this congregation that, that uh, uh, helped open the doors for revival. Verse number four says, And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Medathiah and Shema and Anariah. And you can see all the, all the names there. And the Bible tells us, so, so Ezra was, uh, was at the pulpit. And verse number five says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And I think the Bible ought to be opened in the sight of all the people. Thank God we live in a day and age where all the people can have a copy of the Bible and they can open it up also. The Bible tells us that they opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above the people. He was at the pulpit. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. There was a reverence to God's word. There was a reverence to this audience. There was a reverence to this congregation. This was not just a gathering. This was not just a get-together. There was, uh, there was, uh, they were attentive. They wanted to hear. There was a reverence. This was important. Boy, whatever else was going on out in that street that day, the Bible says that they, they must have shut everything else down because they were attentive and they were reverent. And this was the key thing. The Bible was the key. God's word was why they were there. But I want you to notice not only were they attentive, not only were they reverent, but look at this. The Bible tells us that they stood up in verse number six. Ezra blessed the Lord. We don't come here to be blessed. We come here to be a blessing. Number one to God. It ought to be a blessing to God that we come here with the right attitude, that we come and we reverence him. We keep him first. Listen, it's not about my comfort. It's not about how I feel. It's all about what are we doing for God? Are we lifting him up? Are we blessing him? Are we making him number one? So Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And look at the people. Not only were they attentive, not only were they uh, uh, reverent. Look at this. 
They were excited. Excited. Look at verse number 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. With the lifting up of hands, they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And again, a sign of reverence. You can be excited and still be reverent. Really, you can. I know it's tough, Baptists, but you really can be excited and be reverent. And that's what they were. The people were attentive. They were reverent. They were excited. And boy, we get excited over other things. Even Baptists. I've seen Baptists get excited over sports. Shouldn't we get every bit as excited over the Word of God as we do sports? As we do when we get new things. Oh man, I've seen Baptist eyes light up when they get new cars. Or ladies when they get new, I don't know. What do girls get excited about? Clothes, I suppose. Shoes, ladies. Imagine a closet full of shoes. That's exciting, isn't it? I've seen Baptists get excited over things, but a lot of times it's hard to get Baptists excited in church, excited over the Word of God, the things of God. It's not a sin to be excited. We got the reverent thing down. Oftentimes we got the attentive thing down. We've even learned how to sleep and look attentive in church. But man, when it comes to the excited thing, we need some work. But the worship, my, the worship and the way that we worship and our attitude toward worship, it is so important in opening the doors to revival. But the second thing that I want you to see, the second thing is the identification of wickedness. Here's what's kind of gone out the door in churches today. You can't identify wickedness. You can't name sins you, because it's just, you know, this day and age in which we live, it's just not politically correct. And so, therefore, you just can't do it. Can you imagine Nehemiah chapter 13, getting back to our main text, Nehemiah chapter 13, and as they're reading the Word of God, they're realizing that they're guilty of something that God forbid. You know, when we're guilty of something that God forbids, rather than say, oh, I'm offended. How dare they read that portion of Scripture or the pastor preach on that portion of Scripture. Instead, we ought to say, man, I need to change. I need to get this out of my life. I need to get this taken care of. I need to change some things in my life. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 13... Verse number 3. Oh, I'm sorry. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse number 1. Let's back up. Nehemiah 13, verse number 1. On that day they read in the book of Moses, in the audience of the people, tells us this became a, a, this became a practice, a good practice. But they came to this part. It was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. 
Now, understand this, the Ammonite and the Moabite could get saved, and they could change, and they could become Jews, or we would say in the New Testament, Christians, but they were not allowed to enter the congregation as Moabites or Ammonites because of what it represented. It represented going against God. And if you know the history, you can go back. Matter of fact, it's explained here, verse number two. Because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water. This was as they were coming through the, uh, the wilderness. But they hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites, basically, they hired a prophet to get Israel to do some things that would cause them to be cursed and 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 god for god forbade it he he didn't allow it and so instead um balaam told ammon and moab how they could get them to do it instead of of him doing it but the bible says in verse number three it came to pass that they that when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. So in other words, they had allowed in the congregation things that ought not be in. Just like as a church, we are to be separate from, from worldliness. You know, sometimes we ought to analyze, hey, uh, the music that we're singing in the church, is it more like the world or is it more, um, you know, we are to sing uh, hymns, psalms and spiritual songs why is it that churches think it's okay to get rid of the hymnal and to get rid of hymns when the bible specifically says hymns psalms why don't they get rid of the book of psalms and spiritual songs and by the way there is a difference between spiritual music and secular music and that's for another day But nonetheless, sometimes it's good for us to analyze, hey, all the programs that we have, uh, are they of the world or are they more to promote the world or are they of God? And so they were making a league with the Ammonites and the Moabites and God names that sin and names them specifically. And they said, wow, we have got to we've got to get rid of this in our congregation. Listen, the whole world, the whole reason God wanted the children of Israel to separate themselves was God did not want them to be influenced by anything other than him and his word. When we intermingle by fellowship or marriage with those that are not saved, those on church discipline, those who are heretics, we allow ourselves to be influenced by them. It always amazes me how... Well, a, a, a good, solid Christian will go and date a lost person or even a, a Christian that's not living for the Lord, thinking they're going to change that individual. But it's always the good, solid Christian that ends up doing all the compromising. Well, first, we got to go to a church. Um, and we've had many that have done this uh, uh, in Corridor Baptist Church. They've had they've left to go to a church where they can both agree on and usually that means a watered-down gospel a watered-down church a church where the bible is not the 
the the center of worship. Judges chapter two, Jesus or God warned the children of Israel. In Judges chapter two, verse number one, he said, "Ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land." This was when God brought them into the promised land and told them that they were to take uh, take it over and that they were to clear it out. Ye shall throw down their altars. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides. Their God shall be a snare unto you. And that's exactly what would happen. The reason we have the book of Nehemiah. You want to go through the history of Israel. God brought them into the land of promise. And, and then through the process of time, through they went through the judges, and then they went through the kings, and then we come to the end of the times of the kings, and, and God sends their enemies down to wipe them out. Why? Because of their idolatry. Because they did not keep God first. They compromised. Because the inhabitants of the land became thorns in their flesh. Before you know it, they're mixing worship with, of God with uh, the worship of idols and Baal worship and, and all the other abominations of the land in which they live. So God brought Babylon down and Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, carried them into captivity. The promise of the captivity was 70 years. And then, of course, the Medo-Persian Empire would take over the Babylonian Empire. Some almost 200 years later, we come to the book of Nehemiah. Is Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple's been rebuilt. But Jerusalem is still in tatters almost two centuries later. Nehemiah goes back. There is a great need for revival in Jerusalem. And first and foremost, God needs to be at the center of their lives. The Word of God needs to be at the center of their worship. And so, there was a lack of separation. But when they came, when they came to that part of God's, God's Word, rather than say, oh, I'm, we're not going to change our lives, are you kidding me? No, the Bible says that they did what they were supposed to. Verse number four, I'm sorry, verse number three, it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Do you realize that lifelong friendships were destroyed? As a pastor, I have heard over and over, pastor, no one can tell me who I can be friends with. I'm not, I I wouldn't, dream of telling you that all i can do is read the word of god and then we've got to determine am i going to continue in in my ways and go going against god or am i going to do what i what i ought to do lifelong friends were destroyed because they the bible says they separated they separated from israel all the mixed multitude Many of them had no business being in the congregation. By the way, what are the two, uh, the two things you have to do in order to be a member of a Bible-believing church? First, you've got to be saved. You've got to know Christ is your personal Savior. 
that means you've come to a point in your in your life where where you realized God's right, I'm wrong. Repentance and and, and changing around. Second, you have to be scripturally baptized. They that believed were baptized and then were were added to that local New Testament church there. And so those are the requirements. But do you know that there are churches today that don't require those things? Scriptural baptism, knowing Christ as personal Savior. If anyone was ever to go in there with the Word of God, there might have to be some separations in those churches. First of all, I I would say if a church comes to that point, it's time just to start all over again. But nonetheless, they couldn't start Israel all over again, so the mixed multitude, the Bible says, was separated. This had to be difficult. Notice here's a specific relationship here in verse number 4. Nehemiah 13, verse number 4. And before this, Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of our God, uh, of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. So now here was, was a relationship. Tobiah was an Ammonite. He was, a, uh, he was in league with Sanballat. And if you know the history, you know this. They were two very highly high-ranking officials. You could obviously justify it by saying, well, this was very beneficial to have him. Very beneficial. He was probably extremely wealthy. He had the ear of Sanballat. He had the ear of of the rulers, those that were causing Israel problems. This was a very beneficial relationship. It would be silly to sever this relationship, except Tobiah was not a man of God. He was not a believer. He was an Ammonite all the way. And so here was a specific relationship that had to be severed if Eliashib wanted to be right with God. Remember, in order to be right with God, we've got to be right in our personal relationships. So we see this lack of separation. You know, we're not going to experience revival in our Christian lives if we, if we refuse to separate ourselves from sin and from things that would cause us to sin, the influence of sin in our lives. And what is sin today is still going to be sin tomorrow. Here's another interesting thing about this portion of Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3 Verse number one, the Bible says therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Here's what they could have said, because this is what we hear all the time today. Well, you know what? That's, that's Old Testament. Matter of fact, one of the major Christian teachers today, Andy Stanley, says that all the time. Well, that's... That's Old Testament. We should completely disregard the Old Testament. It was a long time ago. It's antiquated. By the way, the New Testament was a long time ago also. It was written 2,000 years ago. 
But when we come to the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah reads this portion of scripture, they could have said the same thing because Moses was centuries ago. This happened a long time ago. And they could have very easily said, well, you know, that does not matter today. Things change. Come on, let's, let's get with it. You know how many empires have come and gone since Moses wrote that? Just because we live in a society that accepts sin and says, well, we live in the 2020s. Even glorifies sin does not mean that God has changed his mind about it. Woe unto them. Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. We live today in a country that has redefined and downgraded the institution of marriage. Yet God's word still says marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The worship, the identification of wickedness. And, and number three... Number three, there was a wonder. You know, it's amazing what you will find in God's Word if you just search the Scriptures. Just search the Scriptures. The Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 13 and also Nehemiah chapter 8 that as they read the Word of God, they discovered something that had been there all along. This is why we read the Word of God. You know, sometimes you can read a portion of Scripture that you have read, maybe even memorized since a little kid, and it's amazing how one day you'll read that same portion of Scripture, and God will open something up to you, and you'll go, you know, I never noticed that before. It is an infinite book. Of wisdom. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. With every head bowed and with every eye closed. Boy, there, we have a lot more here. Exactly when I'm going to finish it, I'm not sure. But I do know this.